Uh, good morning again, you guys. If you're visiting with us or visiting with us online, my name is Ed, and, and I'm one of the pastors. Today we're beginning a brand new series that I'm very excited about. It we're, uh, about we're calling Rescued, and we're going to walk our way through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Um, and today will be a, a big picture introduction uh, to that series. And I've asked Dean, if he would, to open up by reading for us just the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And uh, if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And Dean's going to read that for us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all, the generation, and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You may be seated. Thank you, Dean. Okay, may the Lord bless this and our time together. Look, we need to be rescued. Whether we like to admit it or not, we need to be rescued uh, from our issues, from threatening circumstances, opposing forces, intense struggle, physical hardship, from our past. Uh, from the worst in ourselves. We need to be rescued, and we have a rescuer. And that is one of the central themes of the whole Bible. And that, that, and that rescue drama is played out perhaps most vividly and most clearly in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is an unforgettable, epic adventure. It's set in the shadow of the ancient Nile River and the great civilization of the pyramids, the scenery moves from the lavish and opulent courts of the king to the fire, sand, and wind of the deserts of southern Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Its central characters are Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and Moses, the humble liberator. For Jews, this story literally defines their existence. And for Christians, as one author put it, quote, Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. God's first great act of redemption, end quote. In fact, it's, it's hard to fully understand the New Testament without some understanding of the book of Exodus. And this story, Exodus, is so compelling and, and so powerful, it, it has been a central theme among nearly every captive people for the last 3,500 years, including in our time, it, it gave hope and, and language to the African-American slave experience in the United States. The Exodus shows us that there is a God who saves, who delivers his people from bondage, so we are never without hope. That's why we're going to make our way slowly through a detailed study of the book of Exodus over the next many months here at Gateway. Stay with me. <laughs> now, we'll do that in bite-sized pieces, perhaps five, maybe as many as seven bite-sized pieces. We will arrange those bite-sized pieces of Exodus among and around other topics, but we're going to keep coming back here. We're not going to slog our way all the way through it, but we're going to constantly come back to this because it is such an epic story and so critically important for us to understand for our own faith and for our understanding of the Bible. For those of you who want to know more about the Bible, this is a must-read. 
If you don't know the book of Exodus, it's kind of like going to a very involved, great movie and missing the first 20 minutes. You, you feel like you're, you're playing catch-up the whole time. For those of us who need a fresh view of God, or we need a reminder of our God, Exodus is the primary text. For those of us who love history and love to know how it all fits together, this book is unavoidable. And I don't just mean for Christians and Jews. I, I, I mean for anyone who's a student of ancient history. I've never preached through the book of Exodus before, and that's partly because it just seemed overwhelming to me. But as you can tell, I'm really excited about this journey. I've, I've been looking at Exodus for probably the last four months in, in preparation for this. Now, one of the things that will anchor our trip through this story, as you'll find out as we go, are the crescendo moments. Every great story has a climax. Well, Exodus has three, at least. There's, there's, the, uh, there's the great parting of the sea and the actual deliverance of the Israelites, the overwhelming Pharaoh's army. And, and, and then there's, the, there's Moses going up on a mountain, an epic uh, encounter with God, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And, and then there's the, the people uh, falling into pagan worship and, and turning away from God and, and God's response to that. And through all of these and the build-up to them, we will learn many things about ourselves and about our God, so let's go. Now, Dean read for us uh, the first seven verses, uh, one, Exodus 1, 1 through 7. The book begins, as you heard, with a high-level genealogy. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, according to verse 1 of Exodus. Don't, don't go to sleep on that. Uh, you see, genealogies were very important to histories in the ancient world, and not just for the Israelites, for all peoples. This is one of the ways, genealogies, is one of the ways that they situated their circumstances. They, they didn't use dates like we do, mostly because there wasn't anything like a universally agreed upon calendar. So you don't ever hear anything like this or that battle happened from February 4th through June 22nd, 1247 BC. There was just no, there was no calendaring like that in the ancient world. What you get is they, they placed their, their events, they situated their events either in a chronology of, of who the ruler was or... They situated them by genealogies. In other words, from the opening verse, don't miss this, this book intends to be historical. So is it? Is it actual history? In other words, did this stuff actually happen? So if you'll bear with me for a minute this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease that question and we will revisit it. Uh, off and on during our time in Exodus, but it's an important question for us to answer, and you'll hear both some answer to it and why. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled debating that topic. For one thing, the dating of Exodus is a little problematic. Did, did it happen in the 1200s B.C., or did it happen in the 1400s B.C., or there are other alternative explanations as well. We'll cover that another week, but just make a mental note of that. More problematic, though, is the fact that Egyptian records don't seem to support the story. One writer explained it like this, and I want you to see this quote. Archaeologists to date have found no direct evidence to corroborate the biblical story. 
Inscriptions from ancient Egypt contain no mention of Hebrew slaves, of the devastating plagues, or of the destruction of Pharaoh's army during the Israelites' miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. No physical trace has been found of the Israelites' 40-year nomadic journey in the Sinai wilderness. None. There's not even any indication outside of the Bible that Moses existed. Another scholar put it even more harshly. Listen to this, quote, The actual evidence concerning the Exodus resembles the evidence for the unicorn. End quote. And this is the main line of thinking among a majority of Old Testament scholars. Teenagers, you may go to college one day and you may take a course in religion and your professor is going to scoff at the idea that these stories are actual events. You can hear the same thing on virtually every Discovery Channel or National Geographic special that you watch about this period and about this book. You'll hear quotes like the one I just offered repeatedly. But, the argument for the actual historicity of this story, meaning the argument for believing these events actually happen in real time and space, is quite a bit stronger than those quotes make it sound. We'll come back to this at various points in our conversations, as I said, but I, 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 right from the beginning, I want to be honest about the academic critique of it, and, and I also want you to know that there is a legitimate scholarly doing good history alternative to the usual line of thinking. Listen, it's just true that much ancient Near Eastern scholarship does not believe these events happened. But seriously, they overlook some real historical evidence in coming to that conclusion. I'm going to talk about why. Let's just cite a few examples for you today. Stay with me. For one thing, there were major building projects going on in Egypt specifically and especially during both of the time periods that are proposed as possibilities for the Exodus. Including, by the way, building of the pyramids and a probable date for the building of the city of Ramesses mentioned later in Exodus 1 as one of the projects that the Israelite slaves built. Not proof, of course, but it's just interesting. Secondly, even though the Israelites are not specifically mentioned in ancient Egyptian texts, and they are not, it's clear that there were, from, from various references, it's clear that there were Semitic slaves in Egypt for centuries. And the Israelites were Semitic descendants. Kind of like there are many Americans of Germanic origin. Well, the Israelites were a Semitic, they are a Semitic people. And and the Egyptians could very well have just not differentiated them from, from other Semites in their thinking or in their records. One example of the evidence of this is fascinating to me. There's a text dating from the time of Ramesses II, who ruled as Pharaoh. You don't need to remember all of these dates. They'll come up more and more during our time. But he ruled in the mid-1200s B.C. in Egypt. This text contains instructions. Listen to this to distribute grain rations to the, and I'll look at this quote, to the hapiru, who are dragging stones to the great pylon. So it's pretty obvious that these hapiru were slaves. 
The interesting thing is that some scholars, and not just Christians, not just believing scholars, some scholars believe that there was a clear word connection, fancy word, etymological connection. There's a clear connection between the word hapiru and the word hebri, which is used in other texts. And we derive from that word hebri, our word hebrew. This would present direct evidence of Hebrew slaves in Egypt, if that's the case. How about a third note? Next slide, Mike. There is irrefutable evidence that the Israelites were living in Canaan by the late 1200s B.C. Stay with me. Uh, we know this because of Merneptah's monument. So uh, flash up the, the slide with Merneptah's monument on it, Mike, if you would go to the next slide. Uh, Merneptah succeeded Ramses II and ruled as pharaoh from 1213 to 1203 B.C. There is an ancient seven-foot granite monument discovered in the 1800s which celebrates Merneptah's accomplishments. It, it is, it's now housed in the uh, National Museum in Cairo. It reads, among other things, quote, Canaan is plundered with every hardship. Look, Israel is laid waste. His seed is no longer. Now, now that, that's an obvious overstatement, that last bit, because Israel outlasted Merneptah by generations. But it's solid proof that there were Israelites in Canaan in the mid-1200s. In fact, it seems like they were the dominant force there, and it seems from what we looked at earlier that one can make a good case that there were actually Israelite slaves in Egypt a century earlier. So something happened. How is this so easily dismissed? Plus, it's not entirely true that there's no documentary evidence of the plagues. There isn't certain evidence to be sure, but it's not altogether absent either. For instance, there is an Egyptian text known as uh, the Epiwer Papyrus. It, it's currently housed in the Dutch National Museum. It's dated no earlier than the 1200s BC, and it might have been later. And this text describes a series of disasters that sound kind of like the biblical plagues. Now, if you look this up on Wikipedia, you'll get a different spin. But if you read the actual contents of the, of the text, well, you can make a case anyway. One, one more small note. There were a series of Egyptian outposts along the coast between Egypt and Canaan. And I want you to see this map. What we're talking about is you, you, you see where the Nile Delta is, upper left, splits into all those tributaries. If you follow the coast of the Mediterranean, up, you'll get up to where it says Canaan at the very top uh, right of the map. That, that's, the, that's the coastal pathway, and there were Egyptian outposts along that coastal pathway, kind of governing and guarding it. A part of that, as you get up toward Cana, becomes the territory of Philistia, where the Philistines lived. Now, this well-traveled trade route, and it was governed by Egyptian authority, this does not prove, of course, that Exodus 13, 17 is true, but it makes perfect sense of that text. I want you to hear Exodus 13, 17. Listen. When Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country. And that's the sea route guarded by the Egyptian outposts. Though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, huh, if they face Egyptian forces perhaps, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Can you see how the presence 
of those Egyptian outposts might explain this little note? Look, I know that this is a very sympathetic crowd. We, right? We, we're, we're, most of us are all in. We're actually anxious to believe this stuff. We've staked our lives on it, so we might not be unbiased critics. I get that. But it is amazing to me that there is such widespread dismissal of this story as actual history in academic settings when, honestly, there are good reasons to at least examine the truth of it. And there's no reason to thoroughly dismiss it. That's just not good history. So, why do so many scholars reject Exodus as real history? Okay, let me admit I've, I've not done a very good job here of outlining their objections, and we'll hear some of those through our time together. But I can honestly tell you that I'm convinced that the most serious bias is not with the believing side of this argument, but with the unbelieving side. Here's the central problem. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. If there were no supernatural elements in this story, there would be no reason to doubt it, and nobody would. Don't snooze on that. I'm suggesting that part of the reason much academic research rejects this story as true has nothing to do with history or evidence. It's because they don't believe in the supernatural. They've decided from the beginning, apart from evidence, that this story can't be true. They don't believe there's a God who acts this way. They don't believe in a universe that moves with this kind of purpose. They don't believe in this degree or any degree of inherent meaning in the universe. But what if they're wrong? What if God exists? And what if he operates in exactly this way on behalf of his people? Well, that's extraordinary. That's amazing. That's life-changing. That's why we're here. Welcome to the story of Exodus. It really happened. And that's stinking incredible. Now, for those of you who struggle with this, you struggle sometimes to believe it. Don't think that that means you aren't a good Christian or that you don't have faith. If you read this story and you occasionally go, what? What in the What? I've never seen anything. Nothing like that. I that's hard to believe. Well, don't think that you're somehow less. It's perfectly natural to struggle with this. For most of us, it may even be necessary. At one point in the New Testament, listen to this. James, in his little letter, says, he's talking about the prophet Elijah, through whom God did amazing things. And James says, Elijah was a human being just like us. That's critical for us to remember as we read this story. It, it's essential for you, whenever you read the Bible, to put yourself in the story because they were human beings just like us. And for most of us, when we do that, we end up sometimes thinking, what? What happened there? That's natural, especially if you're early in your faith journey. In the same way, have you ever heard people try to offer natural explanations for some of the seemingly supernatural events in the Bible, events like the ones in our story? Well, even that effort, even trying to figure out natural explanations, it isn't wrong. Some of those explanations make sense of the story, and they're probably close to what happened. We will offer some of those kinds of explanations as we go through Exodus, but 
you have to know right from the outset that there are many, many circumstances in the book of Exodus that simply cannot be explained apart from some kind of dramatic, supernatural, divine intervention. And that's a part of why so many academics discount it. But that's also why, if this is true, well, the universe is a wild place ruled over by a very purposeful profound, benevolent force that is nearly incomprehensible to us. Stay with me. (laughs) Let me talk just a little bit more about the historical aspect of this. I want to take a quick look at the Exodus itself, the actual, you know, leaving, the whole Red Sea thing. It's a fact that there are no extra-biblical records of the Exodus itself. This epic event of a whole slave people leaving a country, the country of Egypt, and Egyptian forces being swamped doesn't occur anywhere else. How is there no account of this outside of the Bible? But look, that's not really surprising for several reasons. First of all, the Nile Delta was too wet for documents to survive, even decades, much less centuries, and a slave culture wouldn't have had the means to create monuments for themselves. Secondly, The Israelites came out of a slave culture and spent 40 years as nomads in the desert. There is no documentary evidence of any kind for chronicling the lives of any nomadic people in any culture. This is not the kind of society that left records. And thirdly, the Egyptians were a proud people who rarely, if ever, mentioned their own disastrous defeats in their own records. Their records read read like propaganda. So you could hardly expect them to to detail a a time when an entire brigade of their best soldiers is swamped by the Red Sea with them trying to chase runaway slaves, whom, by the way, they never recaptured. In fact, one of the things that makes this story so believable and a fourth piece of evidence supporting the actual Exodus itself is that the Bible, listen, the Bible is utterly unique among ancient documents for providing the most unflattering information about the people who wrote it. That's why, that's what led Professor Nam Sarna to say, the Exodus, this is a great quote, quote, cannot possibly be fictional. No nation would be likely to invent for itself and faithfully transmit century after century an inglorious and inconvenient tradition of this nature, end quote. The Israelites are presented to us as a bunch of whiny, idol-worshipping ingrates. The story doesn't encourage us to praise the Israelites. It encourages us to praise their God. This book is historical. But that last quote by Dr. Sarna points in one more direction that I don't want you to forget through the whole thing. We have to keep in mind, this in mind about the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is historical. The book of Exodus is also theological. Meaning, the central character of the book of Exodus is God. The central character is not Moses. It certainly isn't the Israelites. This book is a study of God. More specifically, Exodus is a a recounting of the revelation of God to a particular group of people and then beyond them to us. God began to show the world tangibly who He is and what He's like through the events recorded in this book. In fact, this is the clearest picture we get of God anywhere until He fully reveals Himself to us in Christ. 
And that's one more final thing to keep in mind as we unpack the theology of Exodus. A part of what we're going to see consistently is Jesus. I don't know if you know the old uh, children's fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel. It's a terrible story. (laughs) But in, in one part of the story, Hansel and Gretel are taken out in the woods and abandoned. But Hansel has a bunch of pebbles with him, and he leaves pebbles along the way so they can make their way back home. It happens again. They're taken out into the woods again, abandoned. This time he leaves breadcrumbs so he can find his way back to his home. God left breadcrumbs throughout the history of his dealings with his people. He left hints that he was a redeemer and that he would come for people when they needed him. And he did, finally and fully in Jesus God's breadcrumbs are all over the story of Exodus. Think about it. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior. Like Moses, Jesus was rescued as a baby from his enemies. Jesus spent time in his early childhood in Egypt. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days, reminding us of the 40 years that the Israelites spent roaming in the desert. Do you know the story of Jesus' transformation? I mean, transfiguration. It's an incredible story in the New Testament. At one point, Jesus went up on a mountainside with Peter, James, and John uh, for a retreat. And while, while he was there, he, he began praying. And Peter, James, and John see this incredible thing. Uh, they see uh, Elijah and Moses in their glorious splendor, Luke describes it, walking with Jesus on the mountain. And in Luke's account of this, he records this. Listen, they spoke with him about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. In other words, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his death and his resurrection. But the word that Luke uses here, which is translated departure, is the Greek word exodus. They were talking with Jesus about his exodus. I want you to hear what one commentary said in summarizing this whole thing. Quote, what all the connections with Christ show is that the Exodus is not a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt anticipated the salvation accomplished once for all in Christ Jesus. End quote. We need to be rescued. And we have a rescuer. Look, if you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that our journey through this Old Testament book will open your heart and mind to that experience. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about being rescued from your issues, from your past, from threatening circumstances, opposing forces, from the worst in yourself. It's a process to be sure. It was for Dean, it was for me. But that process begins in earnest with a relationship with Christ. In fact, you can begin that right now this morning. All you have to do is recognize that you need rescue. You have violated your own conscience and you violated God's design. You need rescue and then acknowledge that you believe this story, Jesus' story, and then you welcome into your life and you accept him as as your governor and, and you recognize he's been pursuing you all along. It's that simple. All right, here's your homework assignment. Between now and Easter, we will cover the first five and a half chapters of the book of Exodus. I want to encourage you to read the whole book at least once between now, over the next couple months. Uh, do a couple of things when you do that. Place yourself in the story. Put yourself in the place of Moses or standing near him and watch. And make note of some things. I want you to make note of what amazes you. 
I want you to make note of the things that you find hard to believe. I want you to make note of questions that you have. And, and with each incident, make note of characteristics of God. What does this tell me about God? And then look for the breadcrumbs that point to Jesus. And after you've done all that, if you would, reread the first five and a half chapters with the same lens. That's going to be our focus uh, over the next month and a half. In conclusion, uh, let me ask the worship team to come up if they would. Um, I had an interesting conversation with my friend Kyle about uh, different kinds of truth. You know, there are different kinds of truth. And we were talking about, Jordan started the service like this, we were talking about football, so far, sorry for the football analogy. But Kyle said, you know, there's, there's one kind of truth uh, you're seeking when you ask the question, who's the greatest quarterback that ever played? Uh, is it Tom Brady or, or is it... Uh, 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 Peyton Manning or is it Aaron Rodgers and, and what you end up with is something closer to an opinion my word not his but you end up with something closer to an opinion there's a different kind of truth in which you ask who threw for more yards than anybody else as a quarterback in the NFL well that you can look up that we've actually counted that actually happened and it's pretty clear what kind of truth is Exodus is the book of Exodus our truth, which makes it sweet and, and, by the way, a very, very inspiring story? Or is it truth like, like how many yard, who threw for the most yards in their career as an NFL quarterback? And if it's the latter, and I believe it is, listen, if it's the latter, if these things actually happened, this is the biggest news story that you and I have ever heard. Tell your children. Tell your neighbors, this is incredible. Look, that, that cancer that you have is small potatoes compared to what God did here. Your financial problems, your relationship problems, that is no big deal. We worship a God who does the impossible. We are never without hope. Let's pray. Lord, we offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you this morning. We've come with as many different circumstances and many different feelings, as many different needs as our people here. And you meet each of us exactly where we are. Jesus, speak people are listening and hear us this morning as we declare our faith back to you we believe in God the Father we believe in God the Son we believe in God the Spirit one God creator redeemer hope sea splitter and I, I speak Lord, this morning into every challenge, every sea that is represented here, and I pray that you would split it apart and enable us to walk through.